again, all my gorgeous listeners, and thanks for tuning in to another bonus episode of the Glow West podcast, where we're here to chat all about the delights of sex, sexuality, and the body. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm always a part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, and of course, my favourite topic of sex. And if you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack to help keep the mics operating. Or if you like, please swap over to Apple and rate and review. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, the Twitter and Instagram is at Glow West Podcast. So I have a fab bonus episode for you today on this probably rainy Thursday, whatever it's like when when this episode comes out. Um, And this is to celebrate a really fab new book and it's called Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. Because poppers are a thing for lots of people and engaged in sex in all its weird and wonderful ways. But we don't really know a whole lot about it, you know, well, a lot of us don't know a whole lot about it. Some of us are experts in it. And I'm talking to one such expert today. So Adam Smith is always writing a novel. He is a co-producer on the Logbooks podcast and co-director of the podcast production company Antonelle. Adam programs literature events for Fringe, Queer Film and Arts Fest. His non-fiction book Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures came out in September 21 from Repeater Books and I'm so excited to talk to him today about it. Adam, welcome aboard. How are you today? Hi Caroline, I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for fitting me into your very, very busy promotion schedule. You have been everywhere. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I'm selling books. (laughs) (laughs) This is the thing. It's like, you got to write it and then you got to do all the promo for it, which takes just as much time. Well, not quite, but yeah, (laughs) hopefully more fun anyway than the writing part. So poppers, like this is a very niche area of the world. Um, Can we ask why you are so interested in the world of poppers? Well, you say it's niche, Caroline, and I know why you say that, and it is, and yet it is also very very common um among certain people and it poppers is one of those drugs that's like it somehow flies under the radar for a lot of people which is why we think of it as niche but actually you know for for many years it um it was the fourth most um consumed uh substance controlled substance according to home office statistics in the uk and uh, also if you ask uh certain groups of people like within queer subculture more broadly like gay men especially then it's like basically ubiquitous so there's that was a thing that drew me to it was the fact that you know this is a product and a substance which is everywhere and yet nowhere at the same time and even for those people who use poppers most people don't really know very much about it and I didn't either I'm in that category and I didn't know very much about it and it was kind of like the butt of a joke or just like a giggle. It's just, oh, this is just a fun thing, a fun part of life that a lot of people sniff poppers. Uh, And so that to me was a call to action really as a writer to say, well, here's this really common thing. It's really interesting, uh, but most people don't know very much about it. So I'll investigate. Mm. And so you did, (laughs) because you found like an extremely long history, like they're not new things, right? So, well, first of all, I suppose, let's explain what a popper is for those who are um, blissfully unaware, uh, or perhaps missing out, depends on on your viewpoint. What is a popper? Well, poppers is the sort of street name that we have now for a collection of substances which are liquid they're um the broad chemical term is alkyl nitrites and the first compound that was synthesized that was used for the reason that i'm going to talk about was amyl nitrite and that was originally used as a 
medical intervention for people with angina. It wasn't made for that purpose. It was made just as a result of uh, several chemists just um, trying out different things in the 19th century. And then a doctor began to use it on his angina patients because it relieved their pain. And then it became a pharmaceutical product and it was manufactured and sold into little glass ampules because it's a liquid, uh, but at room temperature, it's um, always turning into vapor. So you have to keep that liquid contained in something so it doesn't just completely waft away. So they were sold in little glass ampules, uh, which the user or the patient crushed in their hand uh, to release the vapor in like a one shot little ampule and the act of crushing it made a popping sound so that was how that uh, that was how this product got its name poppers and uh, then it transitioned from a medical use to a recreational use and the name because it's uh, more fun to say than amyl nitrite yeah uh, <laughs> you know, the, the name poppers stuck and it's it's funny now that we still use the name poppers and they're not sold in that way anymore there's no popping sound that comes from using poppers because they're sold in little glass bottles now with a safety cap so there isn't a popping sound anymore so we but we still call them poppers yeah that's interesting yeah they, they've got an interesting marketing um history and stuff as well of, of how the, the bottles have changed but also the marketing thing and, and you mentioned in the book you know there is that long history of gay men using them but particularly around 1960s and into 1970s it was a very particular kind of gay man that was advertised in, in this and this like hyper uber masculine kind of tom of finland kind of very macho gay man talk us through about that and how poppers kind of helped that that kind of development of of gay life and and you know particular about who who was the ideal gay man that we were seeing all the time then well as a gay man i think about the 1970s a lot and <laughs> um i think about the the freedoms that many people uh like me had then and um the way that we um, you know, the, the, the 1970s for gay men, especially in rich countries like the UK and the US, were a real hot moment. Um, it was the culmination of the gay liberation movement that had, you know, been been working for decades up until 19 up until the late 1960s um, in legal reform. And then 1967 was the partial decriminalization of homosexuality in uh, some places in the UK. And 1969 was the Stonewall uprising in the US. Um, and so those two things leading into the 1970s meant that, lot, that those gay men that managed to get themselves to places like New York, London, San Francisco, had a really great time. And they were more assertive, they were more visible, they were creating products and businesses, um, like ma and, and presses, magazines, publishing books, and of course, party, 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 and um, lots and lots of fucking, can I say fucking? Of course. <laughs> and so, and all sorts of different kinds of sex. Um, and that was this wonderful period in the 70s. Obviously it wasn't like that for everybody, and there was still, you know, huge widespread homophobia um, and biphobia and all of these other things. And then, of course, from the early 80s onwards, things shifted. And we might talk about that in a bit more. But the arrival of HIV and AIDS as a health crisis really changed the lives and the experiences of these people that were otherwise basically partying and fucking a lot. And so um, in that hot moment of the 1970s that I dream about a lot, 
one of the products that was created and commodified really was poppers. It had been used recreationally for a few decades already and people, we, you know, pharmacies were selling it to people. Um, but in, it was in the 70s that companies in America were founded to actually produce this, produce amyl nitrite as a product with a brand name uh, and with marketing. And they took advantage of the gay press that was very, very um, important in sharing information, you know, pre-Google, remember everyone, pre-podcast. Um, you know, the gay presses were super important in telling people, you know, um, what nightlife was happening or in covering politics as it pertained to what was then basically the gay and lesbian community. Um, <clears throat> and so the poppers manufacturers advertised in those newspapers um, and poppers were sold in, in sex shops and, you know, gay and lesbian shops and stuff like that in the 70s and it became this product that was commodified and the marketing and the advertising basically drew on these ideas of what you're talking about the sort of hyper mask uh, imagery um which in and i think about that a lot not just because there are some like gorgeous bodies to look at um but and some gorgeous artwork actually mm. but because it's both a it's a combination of a um, a reliance upon like a super, super conventional idea of what a man is, like strong and butch, capable and potent. And then a completely subversive idea, which is to put that figure in the position of like literally the position of someone who's like being fucked by another man um, or fucking another man. And so the the combination of those two things is is just really, really interesting. And it happens in the 70s. And that's why it's the subject of a lot of my dreams. Okay. Oh, I really want to explore your dreams because they sound really cool <laughs> um, and really exciting places to be. But, you know, and you're saying in the book, you know, you know, um, it, yeah, it was like an interesting time for when, for like you said, like as, as gay men became more visible and, you know, the Stonewall riots then happened um, and that changed things as well. But it became very much it's like the capitalist gay kind of thing you know of like you have to buy all the leather gear to be the cool gay and all this kind of thing and um you know uh, and again that very hyper masculine like it's kind of what we see in mainstream porn now it's like a lot of the men are like these just like giant hunks and you know they're not necessarily representative of the everyday kind of person but do you think that that was kind of part of that like not like capitalist lifestyle and stuff but it was very much like you got to look like this you got to take your poppers you got to be one of the cool kids kind of yeah yeah definitely I do think that the um the the kind of commodification of a gay identity as it happened in the 70s um but it, of course it did uh um have an impact on people uh and limit what people thought they might want to do with their bodies and how to express themselves it's just like any subculture you know yes there is a uniform there is a language and a vocabulary there are products and on the one hand it's like really it's great that that happens because that is how you create a, a subculture and that's how you create a sense of community but on the other hand it can be exclusionary and you know i think about this looking back now because i'm 36 so i didn't ever exist in the 70s but I've spoken to a few people that have, and obviously I've done research about it and stuff. And it's interesting to think about how, um, uh, looking back now, I might look at those ideas of masculinity um, and as someone who defines as uh, queer now and is quite open about what labels and the fluidity of, of labels and how I conceive of myself and think, you know, that was really quite retrograde, that it was like so 
that they had such solid ideas of what masculinity um, could be. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't want to take that away from anyone who was asserting that that was who they were and that was how they wanted to express themselves. And many people still do. You know, I know someone who goes to the Backstreet Bar in London, which is the most 70s like leather daddy club you can imagine and it still exists in London um you know and, and good for them and uh yeah so I, I I do think that it's interesting to think about the extent to which this is like a commodification of of an identity through making products like you said and selling products and forcing people into feeling that they have to have this product like chaps or poppers or uh, a motorbike or whatever it is and then on the other hand actually people like wanting to um, express themselves in that way and actually get pleasure from doing that. And in the case of gay people, subverting some of those icons and some of those images, you know. Mm, absolutely. And there's so much power to be had, had in that as well and challenging that. But was, was there a racial element to that? Because a lot of the time of Finland stuff is very white, isn't it, as well? So I can, I can imagine a lot of the advertising would have been very white and exclusionary then as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you look at the gay press where these adverts were in the in the 70s, uh, very, very, very white. And if you look at lots and lots of um, remnants, such as posters for nights or photographs um, of prominent people in the in the like gay liberation movement, um, there's so there's there's a, a distinct lack of non-white faces it's not to say that they were not there people like ted brown in the uk were were very present in the gay liberation front uh and he's a black guy um and uh the other other people as well and also people working um outside of that gaze as it were um but it is there's no doubt that it was easier for white people to be more out and more visible and going to the discos and buying the products and being present as a gay man or a lesbian, um, as we, you know, as they might have said at the time. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, definitely something, I, I suppose, there's all, all these histories, I suppose, that we do have to take that into account that there are specific histories and, and your book does as well. So that's great. But talk, talk about the disco thing, like in that, that kind of sense of decadence, like you're saying the 70s and everything was like kind of like a little utopia as well. Like you were saying in the book, some there's, well, was it a rumor or a fact that some discos spray the air with poppers fumes? I love like the decadent idea of that. Yeah, I've heard that from a few people and I haven't found any like evidence of it, but I've heard it from a few people, including someone that worked in heaven, that this also happened in heaven in London, which is a mega club here. Um, it still exists. So it started in the late 70s. Um, so, yeah, I've heard about it. Um, I don't know whether it's one of those things that people say as an idea and then it became a meme and then it became fact yeah, yeah. you know what I mean especially that that sort of that sort of storytelling and myth making happens quite a lot when it comes to nightlife I think and it also happens quite a lot in LGBTQ plus history stuff actually um but I do believe it's credible yeah I can imagine it happening the, yeah if you think about the audacity yeah. of people running some of these nights and the sense of freedom and the and or the sense of uh fucking everything anyway you know like whatever the rule is whatever the law is you know there was a, a great sense of that in the 70s especially in new york and london so it's definitely credible yeah, yeah i think it's definitely. quite like 
it's quite a bizarre thing. I don't think it would be that pleasant. And I don't know that it would work in making everyone in the club like horny or something because it would be so diffuse and it would be weird because it would be on get the vapor would get on your skin. I don't know that it would work. Yeah. I mean, you'd need a lot to like distill down in like the logistics yeah. of this might not be as uh, <laughs> interesting. And then also there's a weird smell that you get when you combine the vapor of poppers with things like sweat and alcohol. And so, you know, if I go to uh, like a sex club today, um, I, I'm, I'm going straight after we've finished on the podcast. <laughs> Why uh, not? Why not? <laughs> Let's go. If we go to a sex club today, you know, you, you, you get, especially if it's like busy and there's a lot of people there, uh, there'll be a lot of poppers present probably. And there's a lot of naked flesh so there's a lot of sweat that's also being vaporized into that air and then a lot of people are drinking alcohol um and that's evaporating too so there is this really distinct smell that is in the air in those um in those kinds of clubs anyway and that comes just from um just from the poppers bottles so i'm not sure about like pumping it into the air ventilation system and what effect yeah. that would have had another degree more you know yeah you'd need like a massive vat as well and that'd be kind of expensive so yeah maybe maybe not as thing but I, yeah. I like the idea yeah that definitely I mean like the stories about like Studio 54 and stuff and imagining all sorts that went on and everything has a grain of truth but maybe not quite as as wild as we like to think but but it kind of came to like a bit of a crash in and I suppose not an end, I suppose a transformation in the 80s because AIDS became a thing and HIV and sex then became this fearful, scary thing. And poppers were this sign of decadence. And, and like you said, like it's, it's fucking poppers are for fucking, but then you couldn't fuck anymore. So how did how did how, how did poppers be, play their part then in this scary landscape of sex equals death? Well, there is a really quite chilling documentary that the BBC made called Killer in the Village. And it was a science documentary, I forget the year, I think 83 or 84, and it was broadcast nationally in the UK. And it was, the village of the title was Greenwich Village in New York, uh, because that was where, well, New York especially, but also the gay areas of Greenwich Village were especially associated with HIV AIDS. It was, it was clearly becoming the center of, of an epidemic. And uh, there is a piece of reporting in that documentary where uh, the reporter speaks to um, some doctors who um, show some poppers bottles and say, look, we it could be this new killer disease, as they called it, could be associated with poppers. It could be caused by poppers. And they explained what poppers were. And then there was a person who um, worked for the gay men's health crisis who was interviewed anonymously talking about poppers and, and what the effect was. And th this idea that poppers might be causing the, this, the, the, these, these collection of infections, which we now would say is age-related illnesses, really came from some research uh, and some kind of quite sort of se semi-theoretical research, actually, um, uh, that, uh, uh, you know about poppers and about blood um that was that first started before the hiv virus was identified and so basically there was a moment of panic people were suffering people were dying and it was clearly a certain group of people it was gay men on the one hand and others um groups of people as well um iv drug users etc and so people were really trying to figure out what was going on and on the one hand, you can understand that sense of panic 
because it was really, really awful. You know, people were dying very, very quickly um, and in awful ways. And Popper's use was heavily correlated with the, um, the people that were suffering in that way. And so you can kind of see where that panic came from and you can see where that causal connection comes from. Um, gradually through the 80s, it became apparent that it was a virus that caused it and that that was transmitted uh, through um, blood um, and through anal sex and uh, which is still connected it's still to do with blood and um the poppers you know the connection with poppers gradually fell away but the um the concern over poppers continued because people had started to campaign among the gay community to stop using poppers uh and there were some quite prominent voices from the us and they made a bit of headway in the uk as well in basically campaigning against poppers and i think that a lot of that campaign against poppers and generally the campaign against gay sex that happened in the 80s um you know was from people that don't understand gay sex that don't have gay sex that don't want gay sex to exist you know because all of this was wrapped up in moralizing language uh, you know with the head of the manchester police saying that uh, the gay people are dying in a cesspit of their own making I've that read kind of that thing. in your book. That's so disgusting. Imagine yeah. that statement. From a police officer. Um, and also it was not refuted by uh, politicians in government. And Margaret Thatcher, as the prime minister, was specifically asked to um, respond to that. And um, she didn't refute it. She didn't say that that was, you know, that that was wrong or that it was inappropriate. <laughs> Just another so, thing to hate Margaret Thatcher for. Right, exactly, exactly. So yeah, there was this real like swirling of um, health paranoia, genuine health panic, and uh, poor leadership as a euphemism for like malignant leadership, I would say, uh, and science and medicine and confusion and, you know, shitty tabloids. Need I go on? <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot. It's like the perfect storm of all 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 the yeah. stuff. But like you know, you do write as well about like the the moral sex and immoral sex. So I suppose the the moral sex would have been good straight heterosexual married sex for procreation and it went, yeah. it, not for money or for drugs or anything like that. And then everything else was like, like you said, this cesspit of ma of your own making. Like how disgusting an expression is that? Like oh. It just, yeah, but that that impacts, you know, like I know that's like a theory and Gail Rubin for all the academic nerds out there listening, you know, has has her thoughts on that. But, you know, how did that impact how people access services and things like this? Like if you're tarred as a moral, like that's that's a huge label to put on somebody. Well, I also co-produce a podcast called The Logbooks uh, that you mentioned at the beginning with two other collaborators and one of the. Well, what we do in the logbooks is um, look through the archive of handwritten notes made by uh, volunteers at a charity helpline called Switchboard, which is set up for anyone who wants to speak about sexuality or gender identity. And uh, so in, in doing the research for that podcast, I have looked at lots and lots of call records at Switchboard by volunteers who have taken calls from people calling to say, uh, I've tested positive for HIV, or they might say antibody, uh, what is it called? Um, ABV, um, anti, uh, AB3, antibody 3, or something like that. It was before we uh, identified HIV. I've sure. tested positive and uh, my doctor has told me to pray, or my doctor has told me that it's all my fault, 
or I don't dare go to the doctor with this problem that I think might be HIV or AIDS, depending on where they are in the timeline, because I know that they're going to give me a hard time or they're not going to treat me fairly. And so they're calling Switchboard, which is a, you know, a, a safe, confidential and anonymous helpline to express that. And that is a really common call in the 80s to Switchboard. And that's just the people that called Switchboard. And it, there'll be lots of people that were having the same experience, but not reaching out for help. Yeah. Yeah, and just suffering in silence like that. It's just like that stigma is just oh, it's so damaging and literally life changing and ending in some cases, you know, so that's yeah. that's kind of a thing. But then then if we move forward into 90s and noughties and kind of tabloidy land and stuff like you also talk then about um, poppers and pleasure and how poppers be kind of came more of a like acceptable thing and you're talking in the book about celebrities who've come out and said that they use poppers and apparently this is like an okay statement to make now so we've moved from like the fear as well not all the time but like you know the the, the general scary 80s fear to like random celebrities like you talk about Sam Smith in the book who says yeah I like poppers like yeah. okay and I think like the tabloid re- tabloid responses to some of those have been interesting yeah. to say the least well the tabloids always and well not just tabloids but like online news media uh the uh, and you know the, the 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 twitter pile and everything like that you know we always like stories of um people taking drugs and we also like stories of people having sex and a story where people do both of those things at the same time is even better um, and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's just something I'm not, I'm not willing to, to push out and say that that's just part of human nature that we're obsessed with those kinds of stories. But um, you know, it's some of it is certainly created by, I think like the market for, for information and stories because of social media and tabloids and stuff. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely still a thing, you know, like if you were a, or if I were, a pop star today and I wanted to get a, a quick a, a quick cheap uh, frothy hit of publicity I would make a post about myself like sniffing poppers and it would be an Instagram post or a tweet tweet that would go viral like imagine if Lil Nas X did that like he already oh, goes, totally viral it would be amazing but he already goes viral like in every single thing that he does um because it's so um you know, amazingly, outrageously sexual and gorgeous at the same time. And uh, and so if he did that, it would just it would be another sense of like the people that use poppers uh, and especially like queer community kind of like owning him and like supporting supporting that and like promoting that and championing it in a way. So that's my advice to Lil Nas X, who I'm sure listens to your podcast, Caroline. <laughs> Fingers do crossed. A post, do a post of sniffing poppers. Yeah. We'll do we'll do I'll do a collab with Lil Nas. Like, you know, where we both sniff poppers on Instagram post. Um, yeah. It would be huge because we like that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, once you put down the phone, it would seem like to be a very good night um, for both of you. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I wish nice. that happens in your life because that sounds like an amazing thing. But <laughs> you're talking about, like, the pleasure part of things as well. And I, I love that because um, we just don't. We talk about the fear in sex all the time. And, like, academic studies are always like, what's the problem of sex? And it's like, we need to look at the pleasure side of things as well. And I have this great quote. It's on page 77 of your book for all those people who we're going to buy it and read it at 77 um and i love what you say so it's there it's talking about that aspect of um sex for fun rather than fear and everything else so you're saying um 
There's an alternative to all this. Sex for fun, sex for now, sex as an emotional and physical experience at the same time. Call it queer sex, sex that doesn't care about creating families or categories or even relationships that are seen as acceptable. Call it fearless sex, sex between people who know that there is that it is things like viruses and bacteria, not sex that causes disease. Call it feeling sex because sex contains both physical and emotional experiences. Even simply wanting to fuck is an emotion. And I just love that. I think like I'd love to like print that off somewhere and stuff. But like it's like that's what we like. It's so vibrant, you know, and it's like we just not not dumb down sex all the time. But like it is caught up in these narratives of fear and danger and disease and stuff like that. And there's just something very kind of liberating about even that paragraph of just rejecting all that and just fucking you know I think yeah just fucking um book number two just fucking (laughs) I no I think that um okay so there's a I I I agree with you like I, I think that we think in many ways we think way too much about sex um and like you said it's often the fear of it or the negative aspects of it the concern about it um etc 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 and and obviously you know like everything i would promote thinking about things and you know whatever but on the other hand i think that there's a reluctance to talking about the pleasure of sex um one because it's actually quite simple and there's not that much to say about it it's just it's pleasurable and go and do it and here is a hundred ways of doing it like it's quite a simple thing um, I have just written a book kind of about it as well. So maybe there is something to say about it, but you know what I mean? It's a simple thing. It's not complicated in a way that those negative things are complicated. And many of them have like problems within problems and there are social pressures and la, 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 la. So on the one hand, it's really, really simple um, to talk about. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why some people who want to do quite a lot of thinking about it, especially academics, don't want to talk about the pleasure because it's too simplistic. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is just... Um, you know, the fucking like Puritans and the moralists are the boring people who um, who have these feelings, you know, but um, but don't want to talk about it because they are worried about other people and the perceptions that they have. So I'm not including asexual people um, in that it's understandable that they are not interested and that they don't want to talk about it. Um, but the, the other people who have these feelings or, you know, if left to their own devices and um, were it not for the stigma or were it not for their own concerns about their own like social standing or whatever, you know, would be up to all sorts. And many of them, of course, are and they just don't talk about it. Um, and the other thing that's in that paragraph that you read, um, thank you for picking out that paragraph, um, is this because there's this I think there's too much of a dichotomy in society between um, like meaning so-called meaningless sex and so-called like. Oh, sex with emotion. And these two things are like put on opposite ends of, uh, um, you know, they're like non-overlapping or something. And it's like, what the fuck does meaningless sex mean? Like, I'm sorry, but if I have, you know, a a hookup with someone um, without any strings attached and it's just a, a quick thing, that is completely chock full of meaning. And don't you tell me that it's not. You know, it's got so much meaning. The meaning that's in my body and in... The other person's body in the sweat that I make in the experience that I have in the relief that I have and in the the freedom that I have I'm sorry there's so much meaning in that and on the other hand emotion sex with emotion implies that those other kinds of sex don't have emotion which of course they do that's why I said like even wanting to fuck is an emotion right desire um and yeah the idea of like oh no 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 I want to have sex that's got emotion 
to it um, is just a bullshit statement because all of sex does have emotions to it. Like you don't, like it's not possible for you to turn off emotions. Yeah, like life might be a bit easier if that no, was a thing. Even but, emotion yeah. is purely, I want to put that thing right here. That's, that's, a fe- that's an emotion, that's a feeling, it's a strong desire. You know, it's a bit like when people say like, oh, you know, like men are just like less emotional creatures or something. Um, and then there's like a shot of men like like screaming and hugging and crying when their team wins the football match. It's like, no, I'm sorry. Of course they're emotional people. <laughs> like, look at them. Yeah, just, just yeah. <laughs> different way of thinking about emotion and talking about it. Absolutely. And there's, again, that moral element there as well of like, oh, it's meaningless because you're not holding hands and having deep, meaningful conversations about yeah. the future of your relationship. Like, yeah. you know, there it is. It's a kind of thinly veiled binary as well of like good sex and bad sex. Yeah. And I think also um, that the the good sex and bad sex thing is really interesting when you talk to people about kinky sex and about uh, S&M practices and the very common misconception about that kind of sex by people that don't have it uh, or don't know very much about it is that it is um, it's either bad sex, um, meaning that it's got this like moral danger and moral peril to it which it might have, but that's kind of part of the play. It's not inherently got that to it. Um, And all, you know, so, you know, sometimes people think that it's bad sex in that sense. And sometimes people think that it's, um, it's dangerous and that it's harmful to the people who are doing it or to one partner who's doing it. Um, And I find that really telling when people make that assumption about kinky sex or, um, or S&M, because um, actually almost always the opposite is true. Um, Because first of all, um, you know, some of the most manipulative and harmful sex can be in the most vanilla seeming scenarios or the most domestic partnerships. And I think that we're gradually getting to grips with that. I think we're, you know, we, we've, you know, there's been lots of stories, real or fictional, over recent years. Um, I may destroy you as a perfect example. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, of, of how manipulative sex. Yeah can be and and gaslighting of people and all of that stuff um and yet there's the assumption that like that's inherently better sex just because it doesn't involve whips you know (laughs) and that there's this assumption that sex that does involve whips is like depraved or um you know or harmful to a person when actually it might be the complete opposite it might be the opposite of harm it it might be their ultimate pleasure and they're consenting to it fully and they know exactly what they're doing and they're getting way more pleasure from it than they would any other kind of sex and that it's through communication and negotiation with their partner which often the vanilla type of sex often does not include you know how many people don't ask their partner or their potential partner what are you into how many people don't ask that question you know that's the conversation that we need to have that's how you have good sex you talk about it yeah absolutely and it's just missing it's like most of the questions I get are about like just boil down to communication and like talk to each other about the whole thing. But I suppose it's easier to kind of go, oh, that kind of sex is weird because there's whips and chains and accessories and poppers and stuff. But I think, like you said, yeah, we are slowly coming around to like realizing like domestic abuse and like, you know, how sex is weaponized in so many households. But that's like really hard to discuss because for like literal centuries, like the church was like, this is the good kind of sex and everything else is the bad kind of sex. So this is a new thing for a lot of people to go actually 
maybe we can open up that conversation a little bit to exactly and that's why that. work like yours is so important because it's it's modeling a way of talking about these things because the alternative is not talking about these things and we know that is that leads to harm yeah. and that has consistently led to harm, especially when there's the suppression of talking about things, uh, especially connected with the church. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, people might look at people like us and say, oh God, you're sex obsessed. You're talking about sex all the time. And it's like, yes, because we're trying to reduce the fucking harm in society, which is caused by people not talking about sex. Oh, I've grown up in Ireland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> There's a lot of that, a lot of repression and just misery and it just doesn't need to be there, you know, and it's just or even things like, you know, you, do, you talk about masturbation in the book as well, um, quite a lot. So that's, you know, yes. well done. You. Lockdown while I was writing it. <laughs> yeah. You did your research on that aspect. But like that was viewed as like, you know, one of the worst things you could do, like you're spilling your seed or whatever. The, the, I suppose the opposition to it is but like you were talking about bringing poppers into that too and and you know that's again it's whole other set of moral judgment and stuff but tell me what a popper baiter is because I actually love that like even phonetically as a term like popper baiter yeah. yeah it's great <laughs> okay so a popper baiter so a baiter is um someone who is masturbating and especially if they're doing that as a um, kind of dedicated practice let's say you know they're making time to do it and they might be thinking about it and planning it in advance or they might do it in certain ways where they're like planning this is all like I'm using these words and these descriptions and it's kind of like one of those things that's like you know grandpa at the disco like to use words to describe this is kind of like weird but um but yeah so a beta someone like that especially someone who uses porn um and especially someone who can go into like quite intense um, like solo sex practices with porn and, um, you know, making plans and maybe with toys and poppers and other things. So a popper beta is especially um, someone who does poppers when they're doing that. And there is a specific uh, sub genre of online porn um, that's made to serve popper betas or rather it's made to dominate popper betas because it's these like super cuts of um, lots and lots of different porn videos and porn clips cut together with instructions which are either text on the screen or like a voiceover by the maker the person who's cut all these porn clips together uh, and they tell you when to sniff your poppers and they, these are timed together with the techno beat that the popper maker popper beta video maker is put underneath and with the sequencing of the images so it's very 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 sophisticated it's like it is yeah. yeah so they're dominating you by telling you by showing you these images and telling you when to sniff your poppers and that it, it you know obviously there's a crescendo effect and then an explosion effect is the desired outcome <laughs> wow okay all right i'm gonna mess up this a popper vader popper beta video maker that's really hard to say um yeah, popper beta video maker yeah, yeah it is it's like she sells c cells or whatever yeah. it is yeah um so the so the video makers are they like you know is it like an underground thing are they like celebrities in that sense is it like i don't oh. know i think i think they're fairly underground like they're celebrities among some uh people online i think who share these videos and if you you, you know you can find forums on reddit and um, other websites where people share links to these videos and they might talk about certain makers uh, body of work let's say um, 
And so, yeah, so they are sort of semi-celebrities in that sense. I was thinking the other day whether anyone has, whether any of the Papa Beta make video makers have made customs for anyone. Because, you know, in online porn, oh, yeah. there's trading customs where you contact one of these makers and you say, I mean, normally it's when you contact a performer and you say um, specifically what you want and how much you would pay. And then they'll make a video of themselves doing that. Um, and sell it to you and it's a custom made video just for you um, and I wonder whether anyone's whether pop-up ba- ba- uh, ma- video makers uh, do customs because I was thinking like wow what would what would I commission them to make um, but you know but the, it is kind of underground you know they're using copyright material um, and so that's one reason why some of the websites don't like to host them the porn even the porn websites I mean and the other reason uh, why the websites don't like to host host them is because they're not made by like porn studios and there's, there's been this huge shift in recent years I think you've covered it on the podcast uh, of the porn websites basically cutting down then um, who can upload videos to them yeah. uh, therefore cutting down on all of the great pro- proliferation of of porn options and cutting out a lot of like niche sexualities and proper beta videos have been one of the um, kind of sacrificial lambs in that in that movement um, that's been going on on porn sites. So we'll have to see where that goes, and uh, hopefully they'll still find a, a space online. Somewhere. Yeah, you can imagine it, it could almost be like an OnlyFans kind of thing to get that custom that way. So I wonder, yeah, would they go in that direction? Yeah, if anyone knows, please uh, yeah. write to Caroline. <laughs> Caroline, please forward it on to me. I will, I will. I'm scared for my inbox right now, but uh, <laughs> yeah, somebody will send in something. And then, so just, I suppose to wrap up, I really like how, um, you know, you also talked just in the book about labels are important for like finding ourselves and stuff like that, but then they can also be kind of restrictive as well. And you talk about like, you know, sexual categories and things like this. So, you know, if, if you had advice out there for someone who is struggling with that kind of like what do I call myself and like what box do I fit into and is this a good box or a bad box you know it's like a messy situation for a lot of people so would you have any any final thoughts for Jerry Springery um approach to people who are struggling with the label issue of things yeah I think that um it's we're living in a really wonderful time uh because of all of the work over the many decades that people have um, put into one way or another, whether it's, you know, um, asserting their rights and getting legal recognition for themselves and what they and how they want to live and uh, or, and the medical uh, profession um, changes there and respecting us to do with sexual health and of course, transgender healthcare. Um, and also just generally the growing visibility and the representation of queer people broadly so we're living in this real garden of um options and with that comes all of these labels and it's it's the labels have been greatly useful in helping us all to assert our own unique ways of thinking about ourselves and how we want to be um spoken about and referred to and understood so the labels are really really useful for that but on the other hand that's really quite stressful and really quite intimidating to a lot of people especially maybe younger people that um kind of haven't kind of like grown up in a way that I have at the time of these labels and these identities kind of um expanding and growing and you know that's kind of happened like um over the past few years um uh, and and so I've kind of like been aware of that. Whereas if you were like a, young, a much younger person than me, like coming into this now, you're like walking into this garden and you're like, wow, shit, look at all these 
flowers and which one am I? And so it's really quite stressful. And so um, uh, all I would say is, you know, um, uh, relax and breathe and um, go and have a look at each of the flowers and look at each of the labels and go to spaces if you can, where people of these different labels, you know, congregate. Um, and that can be online spaces or physical spaces. And um, and don't worry too much about the label because the thing is, it's important, like I said, for all those reasons earlier, but it's also important that people see you who you are and, and um, respect you regardless of what label you're using. And it's and definitely the number one thing is um, not to allow anyone to uh, police the boundary of whatever label you're using for yourself, you know, because that's that's the thing about labels. That's the sort of, the double-edged sword really is mm. that um, they're really really useful but also they can be used um by other people to like say what is and what isn't acceptable within a label and that's just not really cool so I would say uh you know don't let anyone do that to you <laughs> yeah no that's perfect advice because yeah it's a complicated world figuring out our identities especially when we have so much choice like gene theory you know it's like really hard to pick a pair of jeans when there's so much choices <laughs> and stuff like that but obviously a yeah. lot more complex than that but yeah. um this brilliant listen adam i think the book is just a fascinating little romp through the history and and it's just like this tiny little bottle actually symbolizes so much and so much about human behavior and like marketing and patriarchy and bodies and sex and pleasure and fear um you wouldn't think you'd get all that in one tiny little bottle but you do thanks to your yeah. book so where can people find your book? It's out now, um, yeah. September 2021. It's been out, yeah. so you're doing, um, yeah, you're a month into promo. So I hope yeah. you get some rest soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's published by Repeater Books. So if you Google Repeater Books, it's available on their website. But also, of course, it's available in, in bookshops um, around the world, basically, uh, online. Uh, I definitely recommend independent bookshops because they're amazing. So in the UK, um, people are buying it at Gaze the Word in London or Queer Lit in Manchester, uh, bookshops like that. Um, and also bookshop.org, of course, uh, is a great space that supports, it's an online shop that supports independent bookshops. Um, and you can get it on like the bigger, you can get it from the bigger bookshops and retailers as well. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. Well, look, I hope everyone picks it up. So it's Deep Sniff, A History of Poppers and Queer Futures. So, Adam, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thank you, Caroline. It's been really sexy and wonderful. <laughs> thank you. Well, before you go off to your sex club, thank you um, for <laughs> coming out and chatting to me today. And thanks to all my listeners as well. And I really do hope you pick up the book because it's just a lovely, fun look at, at like this whole area that we didn't think we knew about, but an important part of history. So, yeah, absolutely go buy it. So a deep sniff, history of poppers and queer futures and treat yourself before Christmas. And I will chat to you next week. 